0: Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes.
1: We wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going.
0: If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, including a shout out on the show and a selection of successful magazine pitches.
1: If you pledge $10 a month, you also get a free two month trial to Otter, worth $26 alongside the other rewards. Otter offers automated transcription and live note-taking for in-person and virtual meetings. I found it to be a huge help when organising interview material.
0: Thanks again for supporting Always Take Notes. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Rachel and myself spoke with the novelist Ian McEwan.
1: We spoke to Ian about his experience as the first ever student on the UEA Creative Writing MA, about his extraordinary run of success in the 1990s and early 2000s, and about his new novel,
0: Lessons. It's a great episode, and we hope you enjoy it. Hello, Ian. Great to have you on the show, and welcome to the podcast. We wanted to start with the new novel, with Lessons. Could you tell us when the story of Roland first started to take shape in your mind?
2: It started to take shape in note form in um, October, November 2019. I knew that I was in for a long haul, uh, and... I was looking forward to just a sort of total immersion, uh, so the pandemic was something of a gift from that point of view, my own purposes, uh, even as the tragedy was sort of unfolding around us. Uh, I began as I often do with just doodling in a notebook and writing what is now in fact the op- the opening of the novel, although it was in a very different form, um, and as often happens with me. Uh, those doodles are really in search of something particular and specific that encapsulates what's been on my mind for, for for a long while. So I had thought of a novel that would be part memory, part invention, fiction and biography entwined, and I stumbled across it's almost like an automatic piece of writing of a 11 year old boy in a piano lesson, a rather frightening teacher, and a sense for the outsider, not for the boy, that he was being sexually groomed. And as soon as I had it down, I knew that actually this was the the specific, something I wanted, I had a character I could follow, I knew exactly who he was. And the room was familiar, the experience was not. But the room was familiar, it was one of the music rooms in in my boarding school, a state boarding school on the Essex um, Suffolk borders. And uh, it caught everything that I'd been sort of making notes about. So, yes, I started then, must have been November 2019.
1: You've said that the character of the piano teacher is not based on on any um, experiences of yours, but as you allude to, the boarding school is, and also I'm guessing the uh, your upbringing in Libya, how did you decide which parts of your biography you wanted to use as a kind of skeleton and what you wanted to sort of uh, embellish?
2: I don't know how I made those decisions. It, they all seemed to fall into place. It, it was fairly obvious to me that my life would diverge from Roland's around about the age of 16. I, I stayed on at school and went through the, the, the usual kind of process of a-levels in university, but um, this was not to be Roland's future. So um, like railway tracks diverging, uh, our lives became disparate. But always he was a kind of alter ego, a, a life I might have led if I'd not discovered writing. And um, I've never written biographically about my childhood in quite this way. So it was, it was clear to me there were s- things that I really needed urgently to cover Perhaps because I'm entering my mid-70s and we were in that time, I think a lot of people were reflecting on the past um, during those lockdowns. The past pressed in on us, uh, especially those of us of a certain age. How did we come to be what we are? Were we loved as a child? Were we nourished? Um, Where did things go wrong? All those sort of questions that press in when one thinks about a whole life. So it was always clear that I would cover the ground that was revealed to the family by a new brother, which itself cast a lot of light retrospectively on our family, especially on my mother and the sadness that um, was entailed in her giving away a child on Reading Railway Station. Uh, But also my father, a very complicated figure. And um, although fathers have appeared in my fiction over the years, and often not in a great light, starting, I guess, with the cement garden. I never really dealt with it head on. And the problem was always this, that I I loved him and I feared him. And those two elements are always difficult to disentangle. I was a shy child, and a shy teenager for that matter, and found him found it very difficult ever to can really confront him head on. And because I'd sent away for boarding school for seven years, I'd basically left home at the age of 11. Three quarters of my life was away. So I was absolved from the necessity of having that proper teenage, eatable fight in which I'd kill the father. Um, and then I was in my 20s living my own life and I could row with him happily <laughs> about anything and it no longer mattered. But I really want. It was clear to me from the beginning. I wanted to get those issues, those tensions, those silences, those terrible silences, the things not mentioned, the secrets withheld. Uh, I really wanted to get those down on the page.
0: And did you feel you were consciously writing a, a post-me too novel? I mean, that's that's in the commentary on it. That's that's come up, and this kind of ambiguity that you establish about whether this affair or what, what, depending what term one uses, this this sexual interaction between a, a, a child and, a, and an older woman is it a terrible thing is there elements of it that are not did you feel you were you were riffing on the zeitgeist more broadly
2: I felt it was a bit of a tightrope um, but then I decided not to care I was going to write what I was going to write and um, I've reached that age where It doesn't trouble me much. In many cases of child abuse, uh, either ones I've read about or ones I've heard about from people close to me, there's a whole swirl of contradictory feeling. and, And there's a sort of element of Stockholm Syndrome about it too for some people, that yes, they were induced into loving their abuser. There's also a bit of me that thinks that Perhaps we've trapped ourselves into believing that the past can never be left behind. Um, I think it is possible to leave the past behind. And I know people who have come through dreadful episodes in their lives. And yet it hasn't cast a long shadow. They aren't ruined forever by it. And others who, who are quite different. What I think we need to avoid is all being herded into one set of responses. It was there as a background, the, the matter. So a woman abusing, a female abusing a male, that's rather against the grain, but you know, three or 4% of cases are exactly that. And there have been some notorious ones in this country alone. I didn't want to do it any other way. I didn't want, I wanted to travel with Roland. He was my alter ego. Uh, I know best about heterosexual love and sex So I didn't want to make it male-on-male sexual abuse. And so, in a sense, it was already shaped for me by where I was. There was never anything other. It's interesting, too, though, um, I heard a young male novelist whose name I didn't catch at the time. I was in the car. I think he'd published one or two novels, quite well-received, serious novels. And he said that he did not know how to write about male desire without fearing attack. And I thought, this is a tragedy. This is an extraordinary tragedy because the great glory of the novel is to write about everything that's there, to name the world. And the moment you start resiling from that, then I think you're lost. You know, you've become like a Soviet novelist or something, who's a paid-up member of the Writers' Union. So I, I, I was aware of all that, but it I, I felt that I would give roland's abuser her her moment her voice there's something crazed about her but writing the scene of the confrontation between the two of them 40 odd years 45 years later uh, was very important to me i wanted to get us th- put over the sense that she was in the grip of something she could you know she had to take responsibility for it but you know it was a passion and it seized her and nothing is resolved one aspect of this novel is is a protest against the word closure things either get forgotten um, or they linger on or they become part of your baggage. Um, or, as I say, you know, there are some people for whom terrible events, they, they're there, the story can be told, but they do not deflect that person from the course of their life. Roland certainly is not quite that because this matter does cast a shadow over his life. But it's not tragic. Um, it's not, you know, I read cases of a woman and this, There's been a a moment in the lift, and it was eight years ago, and I can never quite believe that the whole life has been destroyed by this. I mean, I I do think there's a kind of orthodoxy in the world in which people feel that because it's become become an on It's is what one says about it. And I think the interesting matter is just, as I said at the beginning, the diversity of responses that people have, and they should be allowed to have,
1: I felt that there was also the resistance to closure in the way that Alyssa's um, storyline is is handled Um, and I was fascinated by her and the fact that she walks out in Roland because she's constricted by domestic circumstances Um, why did you make her a successful novelist would it have been more interesting if she'd walked out and continued to fail to produce anything why did you handle her storyline in that way
2: Oh, it's more interesting to me that she should become Europe's greatest novelist, however unlikely that might be, uh, because I wanted Roland to be her most earnest and dedicated reader, even as he is so dismayed and sorrowful and angry about her abandoning him and their baby. So I wanted this lifelong reading commitment that Roland must undertake. Uh, When he reads her first novel in Berlin, while the wall is coming down, Uh, it's a matter of great dismay when he reads the opening however many pages and realises that it's a masterpiece. Uh, What's he going to do now? She left him for a very good reason. He knows she could never have composed that novel in the squalid surroundings of their South London little house. So um, ambivalence is far more interesting, I think, than anything else, that he should take vengeful satisfaction that she never became novelist. There's a poem of Philip Larkin's I've always loved, The Poetry of Departures, in which the, the poet, who's a, obviously a Larkin figure, thinks wistfully of those people who say things like, take that you bastard, or then he hears, uh, and then he up and left her. And uh, he sort of quivers with some sort of suppressed delight and anxiety all bundled up together, and thinks for himself, you know, could he be such a figure um how does it go You're crouching in the forecastle, stubbly with goodness so swaggering the nut strewn roads and then decides no no that's all too much a pursuit of perfection and uh, and there's something very artificial about it well elisa is one of those people who makes the savage decision that she's not leading the life that she's meant to lead that she has something very important to do and she's going to do it very few of us are capable of that But we have that sort of sneaking admiration for people who could just turn away. Interesting, and Roland confronts this, that it's much more difficult for women. Uh, The literary biographies are stuffed with men who left their families to dedicate themselves to uh, their art and usually a younger woman. Um, The name of Doris Lessing cannot be mentioned without someone saying, well, she left her children. Uh, And I think that, you know... Women artists pay a much higher price for this. So I wanted to get into that little nook uh, and, uh, and play with it.
0: We wanted to come back to the new novel later on, but could we roll now back to your early childhood and your kind of early interest in reading and, and literature? And I know that actually some of this does permeate into lessons. So, you know, there's, there's an a overlay there. But growing up as an army brat, is it right that you, you didn't have books in the house, but there were regular trips to the local library?
2: That's correct, yeah. Um, so we were in Tripoli, Libya at the time, and the local library was an army library. My parents were you know, had left school at 14. Um, they were never read to, um, so they did not read to me, nor did they have any idea of the prescribed children's classics, you know, the railway children or, or the Hobbit or whatever. So... When we went to the library, I was left to my own devices. There was no one to recommend books to me, so I just worked my way through the shelves and read indiscriminately. When I got to my boarding school, there there were at last some people to tell me what I might read, and I became a very early reader of Golding Murdoch. Iris Murdoch, I read Under the Net, I must have been about 13, and I thought, I just cannot wait to be a grown-up. The world that Iris Murdoch described to me seems so enticing and um, exotic, sexually exotic, and rather brilliant. And, and everyone had names I'd never heard of, Caitlin, and this sort of North Oxfordish world, just really, really uh, appealed to me. In fact, many years later, I ended up living in North Oxford <laughs> for 17 years, maybe haunted by these Iris Murdoch characters. To come back to your, to your question, my parents valued ed- the education they didn't have themselves. And uh, I was lucky in that respect. I was free in some ways. Uh, I didn't have anyone breathing down my neck and I remember when I was at university, and I wrote about this in Black Dogs. Actually, making good friends with people from much more sort of culturally laden, privileged homes, which they couldn't wait to get away from. You know, their houses were packed with harpsichords and books, wall, uh, floor to ceiling. And I, I know one or two of those friends couldn't wait to just become sort of rough hewn tough guys who had tastes for lambrettas. I rather sort of uh, tempted to run into the base that they'd deserted. I was very pleased when their parents invited me in to sort of come and talk about literature and listen to their mum play the harpsichord. And, and that was my teenage rebellion, I'm afraid. It was a very pathetic way. Um, I didn't do outrageous things. I just discovered all the things that I didn't have at home uh, in in a big way. I mean... Poetry, especially classical music and jazz and rock and roll all came at me at once. My proper teenage rebellion was mainstream culture. Bach delighted me almost from from the very start, um, and that's remained all my life. I did have that experience that many, many British writers have written about of feeling very alienated from my home and by the time I was 18 or 19, I think I was insufferable at that point. I felt that anyone who didn't, who couldn't recite The Wasteland wasn't really worth taking seriously. Uh, it was a terrible state of mind to be in. Thank God it didn't last very long.
1: I was going to say, you're about to ask us to quote to some choice, Elliot.
2: <laughs> Don't ask me now. <laughs> I was lucky in some other ways too that a boarding school that was not oppressive, uh, which was a rare thing in 1959, uh and uh, a place set in a glorious piece of Suffolk landscape, um, which gave me a taste for, the beginnings of a taste for hiking and just being outdoors. But also uh, coming to Sussex University when it was a tiny place, only two or 3,000 students, all the teaching was by tutorial And Asa Briggs' plan to redraw the map of learning really suited me extremely well. I had a one-to-one with an ex-diplomat, as well as standard English literature course, to be able to do international relations on a one-to-one basis with a man who had been at the Nuremberg Trials as a barrister, who worked as a
0: diplomat, who
2: ended up running Penguin books, actually,
0: Peter Calvocaressi. And then where did UEA fit? into that as well I mean obviously doing it afterwards but what was the experience because you were the the first generation going through that what what was that experience like and, and what's your attitude towards creative writing programs now
2: I was a one-man generation because uh, when I think back so it was 1970 uh, I'd been hitchhiking back from Italy with my girlfriend she already was off to do an MA somewhere and I had funds from the Department of Education to do an MA, but I hadn't chosen a place to go and do it. I didn't know what I wanted to do. All I knew was I didn't want a job, so you would better do a bit of postgraduate work. That seemed the only sensible thing. And I saw a um, prospectus from the University of East Anglia, and there was a description of a course in comparative literature didn't call itself creative writing, but it said that one tiny bit of it could be devoted to uh, some creative writing. And I remember I just, uh, those were the days where uh, all telephones were kept in the hallway uh, and there was only one of them in the house, going down and uh, phoning UEA and immediately getting Malcolm Bradbury on the phone. The the world was much smaller in 1970. There are only four billion of us. And he said, the course has been closed because no one's applied uh, for the uh, creative writing bit. And I said, well, what if I applied? And he said, well, come and see me and we'll talk about it. So I borrowed my father's car and drove from Middle Wallop in England, southern England to Norwich, uh, met Malcolm Bradbury. I had the course described to me. A lot of it was literary theory, uh, a rather nice 12 weeks spent on large Victorian novels and uh, large um, 19th-century Russian novels, which I'm particularly craving. I met Malcolm Bradbury during that year maybe five or six times, usually in a corridor. I'd hand him a short story. He would give me some cursory remarks, like, enjoy it very much, but what are you going to do now? There was no guidance. He gave me reading lists, actually, that, that was marvellous. There was no course most of my time academically was spent writing, comparing uh, or writing side by side accounts of Middlemarch and Anna Karenina, that kind of thing. So I always bristle when I'm described as being a product of a creative writing course, there was no such thing. Uh, But it was a fabulous year. I wrote 30 short stories I did all the MA work, the literature stuff. I read Malcolm Bradbury's reading list, which was mostly American literature, so it was my first introduction to proper deep reading of Bellow and Updike in particular, but also Norman Mailer. In the summer term, Angus Wilson took over, and again it was tea and strawberries in his cottage in the deep countryside. Uh, And again, the talk was of, you know, scandalous gossip from London and... And New York, rather than anything he had to say about my stories, but I was free. And um, at the end of that year, I had maybe half the the stories that went into First of Last Rights, my first collection. So again, I was extreme. I've had a, a lot of luck in in this respect. And just to come back to my time at Sussex, the broadness of the course. So there was plenty of Shakespeare and 17th-century poetry, generally, and everything else you'd expect from a literary degree. But, you know, I also sat on a seminar for 12 weeks on um, quantum mechanics for liberal arts know-nothings. That was the beginning of a really serious interest in science for me. Those three places that that rather liberal boarding school, um, Sussex's wide notion of education and this lucky year at UEA were really uh, very powerful influences for me. I'd read a lot then by, by 1971. I felt sort of ready and utterly committed to a life as a writer. I didn't want to do anything else.
1: We want to come back to your interest in science later, but I wanted to ask about the nature of your early work. You famously earned the nickname Ian Macabre. Why were you interested in such subject matter at that time?
2: You know, I'm I'm asked that question so often and uh, I've tried all kinds of answers. They're all, all slightly dishonest. And the least dishonest answer is I don't really know. Without submitting myself to a rigorous course of psychoanalysis, I think that I had gone through the conventional mill of education. For example, my time at Sussex in the late 60s, I fell in with a bunch of extremely nice, hard-working sociology and history students. We shared a large house together for two years. Our girlfriends were all historians and sociologists and anthropologists. Uh, We didn't smoke dope. We only rarely got drunk. We didn't do anything outrageous. We worked incredibly hard. So I'd gone through the whole mill and behind me was a fairly suffocating home environment um, and it took me many years to find out quite why it seemed so strange and why there was you know there were secrets that I didn't even know were secrets so when I started writing I think a kind of lid came off of, of it all and in short stories I found the field for a kind of wild imagining Um there was also a, an impulse to shock people, which I denied strongly at the
0: time, but I think was always there. Could you tell us about the kind of mechanics of getting published for the first time? We really like in the podcast to get into the nitty gritty of this. So, how did you go about getting an agent and getting, you know, your your early books published and so forth?
2: Well, again, another stroke of luck was to be at UEA with two established writers, Angus Wilson sent a bundle of my stories to Secker and Warburg. Uh, Tom Rosenthal was there at the time. And he turned them down on the basis that, uh, a strange decision actually, given that he was Angus Wilson's publisher, Uh, but he turned them down on the basis that uh, he couldn't start a writer's publication with short stories, that I'd have to write a novel first. Now, Angus Wilson published two, I think, wonderful collections of short stories with Secker and Warburg. To launch his career, well, I think the small magazines played a crucial part in my early writing years. Malcolm Bradbury suggested I send a story to the Transatlantic Review, and that was published in nineteen seventy three I was taken up by the editor of a very important now much forgotten literary periodical called The American Review. It was published as a paperback book, a quite trashy looking publication quarterly, and it was fiction, poetry and essays in the usual way. Um, It was edited by Ted Solitarov. It sold a 100,000 copies every issue. It therefore was able to pay writers. So my first significant check was for $400 for a short story, which would be a lot of money even now, w- would be a significant sum. Uh, then it was a fortune. I mean, I, I could pay my rent for almost six months for that. And Ted Solotorov published my maybe three, four, five, I can't remember, short stories. And actually, the small magazine also played a part in my life after UEA in that um, through... The writer uh, Jonathan Rabin, uh, who himself had taught at UEA and was now freelancing in London, um, he introduced me to Ian Hamilton, who was just setting up when I arrived in London late 73, um, after being in Afghanistan. He was setting up The New Review, which actually furnished me with many of my lifelong friends. Uh, Craig Raine, James Fenton, Martin Amos, Christopher Hitchens, and so on. Um, and Ian Hamilton published three or four of my stories there. I don't... I'm not in touch now with how things work for younger writers, but I get the sense that the small magazine is perhaps not quite so crucial. I know that they exist on the internet... But the important thing about those small magazines, they run out of dusty offices. The new review ran out of Greek Street, Soho, from above a pub, Pillar of Hercules. And it was also a place. I mean, one hung out there and spent a lot of time there and met new people and, and read their stuff. Uh, so that meeting place was important too. There was a you know, rather pleasant competitive air. I met you know, Martin and... Amos, Julian Barnes, Craig Graham, we we're, were all just publishing our first books. Um, so we were all looking over each other's shoulder in a way that was quite electrifying and um, animating. Uh, uh, and they were great company too, very, very funny, charming company. You couldn't get that off the internet, that's quite clear. Um, I got an Arts Council grant, and again, uh, that was procured for me by Al Alvarez. Who also I met. If I was running the Arts Council I'd say the best way to do it would be to fund a small magazine, set it up in an office and let people flourish around it, not just write for it, but be with each other. It's lonely enough, I guess, writing, but having a a sense of community I think is is important, even if you're all doing extremely varied different things. <laughs>
1: Hello, it's Artemis, the producer of Always Take Notes. I hope you're enjoying Simon and Rachel's conversation with the novelist Ian McEwan. It's time for the next instalment of our segment, where we share bonus material from previous guests of the show. So this week we're going to hear from another novelist, Val McDermott, and she's going to tell you about a piece of advice she wished she'd had at the start of her career.
0: The one piece of advice I wish I'd had at the beginning of my career was to edit. Edit all the time. Edit as you go along. Edit at every point. Rewriting is where the magic happens. Uh, I used to be a journalist and my plan was always to get it down on paper as fast as I could because there was always deadlines looming. The great luxury of being a writer of fiction is that you have the chance to go back and refine it and polish it and change those adjectives and shift it around so I wish somebody had told me at the beginning how important that process of polishing and editing was.
1: That was Val McDermid. And if you were interested in what Val had to say, you can listen to our full interview with her via our website, which is www.alwaystakenotes.com. But for now, back to Simon and Rachel's conversation with Ian McEwan. <laughs> Am I right in thinking that you wrote journalism alongside your fiction for about 10 years before you were able to sort of of rely on your novel writing for an income?
2: I did odds and ends. I wrote for the Radio Times and that was actually an important source for me. It was edited by Geoffrey Cannon and he had a policy of uh, only employing poets and novelists to write copy. And I became the sort of in-house specialist writing cover stories whenever the BBC did a big costume periodical, you know, um, whatever it was, Nicholas Nickleby or... I'd go to the London Library and dig up little-known facts. <laughs> and it was fine. It was just like turning in a regular essay at university, you need 1,200 words, uh, except a big, you know, check would come for £130. Pounds. Again... It, Much easier for a writer living in London to survive in those days. Rents were very low. There were less things to possess. You know, we didn't have to have phones or hi-fis. A couple of pairs of jeans and three T-shirts and, you know, basically a weekly visit to the laundrette. Uh, There was always enough to live on, however little one had it seemed. I did a bit of reviewing for The Observer, Spectator, New Statesman, and I wrote um, television plays couple of television plays. I met Richard Eyre, who's a lifelong friend, uh, and wrote a play called The Imitation Game. There was a series called Second City First, uh, um, run from Birmingham Studios. They were looking for new writers to write a ha- and commission them to write a half-hour TV play just to tr- try their hand at it. So that was the first screenplay I ever wrote for them. It's often said, but I think it's true, in the 70s, you could always get by in in ways that I think it's a thousand times harder now. Accommodation being a crucial thing. I mean, a room of one's own is important for men as well as women. And you could get a room of your own in pretty near to central London for next to nothing.
0: Just moving forward a bit to this extraordinary few years that you had with Amsterdam, Atonement, Saturday on Chesil Beach. Did you feel at the time that you were in a particularly productive period? And was there a sense? a sort of certain moment when you really felt that your work had exploded or reached a a wider public. Was the book of that? Or tell us about that whole period.
2: I don't think of that time as different from other times, really, except for atonement. I guess for most literary writers, you're lucky if you just have one book that breaks out. Um, I mean, I know that there's a, maybe for some writers that they might have loads, but I, my sense is there's always one that you get associated with. And while I was writing Atonement, especially just towards the end, I remember phoning my then editor, Dan Franklin, at Cape, saying, look, I think we are going to have trouble selling this novel because it's really a, a novel I've written for other writers. And if you can sell 5,000 of them, it it'd be great. And he said, well, that's fine, you know, I don't mind that. And then when he'd read it, he he... He rang back and said, you're kidding. It's got three elements that I know we would be able to sell a lot of copies of. And I said, oh, what three elements? He said, as if explaining to a complete moron, he said, Second World War, Country House and a love affair. He said, you know, it's just we know that we can do something. So I realised that's why I'm not a publisher. I wouldn't have guessed that. I thought I'd written a novel about literature. Um, and how to represent an experience and how a writer spends a lifetime writing the drafts of, a, of, of an experience and then produces the final copy, which the reader has just read, but it's divergent from the facts. Uh, I thought that this is not going to go down well, but I think it's you know, it's full of other writers, from Richardson to Joyce to James and so on. And no other book of mine has been anything like as successful. So Amsterdam or Booker Prize irrelevant in terms of sales, and then helped by a very successful movie by Joe Wright, extremely well cast as well. So that that got me a reputation which is even worse than the uh, macabre one of being a best selling writer. It is. It stands alone. I mean, it's just. Nothing else I've written has ever sold even a fraction of that. And I enjoyed it. I mean, it was great. I mean, it's wonderful to be read. I got a taste of why people become, you know, uh, John Grishams or whatever. The idea that that you've crept into the minds of um, a few million people instead of a few thousand uh, is an extraordinary thing. But that period of my life, well, enduring love, Running through to the, the the group you just mentioned, I don't know for then each one seems so different to me that I, the experience of them you know Saturday from um, the Children Act and so on uh, I can't really group them together as a time
1: was the experience of writing each one different, or do you have a a similar process when you're when you're putting a novel together in terms of research and then writing as well
2: yeah, my my methods of working stayed pretty constant, actually. I didn't really discover the pleasures of research till I wrote The, till the Innocent, going back a good bit. After I'd finished writing uh, The Child in Time, I'd been in Moscow with a group from an organisation called END, European Nuclear Disarmament. Uh, E.P. Thompson was its guiding spirit. And we were in Moscow to try and make... Touch, get in touch with Russian dissidents who were writing about the Russian, the Soviet military industrial complex. Like all anti-nuclear groups, Western anti-nuclear groups, we were very much welcomed by the Soviets. And we had high level access to the American and Canadian Institute. And we'd meet each morning they would try to dissuade us from meeting these people. Uh, they're irrelevant. Uh, they're basically Jews looking for exit visas. We were told, uh, but still we went ahead and we met them. Um, followed all the way in the usual way, but it was during the time of Glasnost and and Perestroika, and um, I had very much a sense coming away that the Cold War could not survive that the even the Russian Empire could not survive because already Gorbachev had announced that he would not intervene militarily if uh, the satellite countries um, went their own way. And we kept saying to these very nice, highly educated Soviet uh, Russian bureaucrats, if you have freedom of speech how are you going to um, prevent another political party? Surely that's the end of the reign of the communist party and they never had quite an answer to that they sort of fumbled around that and out of that came my sense that i wanted to write a novel about the cold war i couldn't write about moscow because i didn't know it well enough i didn't speak any russian i spoke a bit of german and that's why i set the novel in berlin and i had a i was in berlin quite soon after moscow made friends with a guy who who was looking after me during the during some literary festival. He was my betroyer, as they call it. He was um, and then he became my researcher. Went back to England and together we formed a, a very close sort of research unit. Uh, and I wrote a novel basically about Berlin in the 50s, um, but ending with the sense that the wall is about to come down. When I finished the novel in June of 89, that's how the novel ends, with the sense that uh, he had to meet his old lover in Berlin before the wall comes down. Four months later, when it did come down, I was completely astonished. Astonished by being right. Also, I thought it was very unfair uh, to uh, mess around with my draft. I, I kept it exactly as it was. But that love of research was born of that, that excitement and i made sure i was in berlin day after the, the wall did come down
0: just following from from that point about research and, and kind of expanding on the notion of your your technique and your process a, a question that we always put to writers on the show is whether they're a, a plotter or a plunger to use the kind of vernacular that we've uh, stumbled upon or stolen which is whether there's someone who has a Uh, the plot of their novel entirely worked out in advance be it in post-its or or even a spreadsheet we've heard or if you just dive in and follow your nose and i I was told somewhere that your method is that you start with an incident and then you work out from that is that correct and could you elaborate on on how that works for you
2: i place myself in the category of a stumbler i stumble into my novels i have some vague idea of what i want to do i often It's often running in parallel with two or three things I want to do. By writing a few paragraphs, uh, I hope to find the the specifics of of whatever it is that would carry me into the material. Uh, I have a vague idea, but I'm not a plotter. My sense of the novel is... Each new novel teaches you how to write it. And it won't help you with the next novel. Um, It'll only help you with this one. And it'll teach you to be an expert in writing this novel. So as long as I have something specific, then various opportunities and what seem like um, offers of freedom will be delivered. It often happens that I look at something that I've just written, and it has to be in longhand, it has to be black ink, it has to be in a green notebook. I look at a passage and think, I I can't even tell why I feel so intrigued by this or why it seems to be holding a secret that I've yet to unlock. But I know this is the one. And so that's how atonement began, that's how lessons began. It rarely diverges from that. Occasionally it does. Once I was sitting in um, in Wigmore Hall waiting for a concert to begin, and um, my friend, who's a, who's a an appeal court judge, told me of a case about a Jehovah's Witness boy who was refusing a pint of blood. And even as he was telling it to me, I knew that I had the entire plot of a of a novella. Then the Juilliard Quartet came on, and um, I didn't listen. I didn't hear a note of it. I, Already, my mind was racing ahead, and it's the only time I've had a whole novel in front of me. Um, and that became the children act. Most often, writing a novel is for me a journey of discovery, it's like going up a river and, um, with only a, a sketchy map on the back of an envelope. There are certain scenes um, I know it's going to take me a year to get to them, and I'll make copious notes along the way. So often, Uh, I can see my way ahead. There is also particular scenes. I know it will take me a year to get to them. And I don't want to see any notes or have any thoughts about them. So when Roland goes to see uh, his piano teacher, Miriam Cornell, who sexually abused him or drew him into a relationship, I had no idea what was going to happen. I wanted to ring the doorbell with him. I wanted to go into the scene and find out what happens by writing it. And likewise, when he goes to see the woman who abandoned him and, his, and their child to become a famous novelist, she's now dying, she's had her foot amputated, they're going to get drunk together. I have no idea. Again, I did not want to write any advanced notes. So it's a mix of those two, of having a rough idea but also knowing that a good morning's work will sometimes throw up a, a new opportunity, a new direction. And surprise, that's the gift, the surprise. The other gift is something that I I know that something's not confined even to writers, but times when you are so deeply immersed in the scene you are writing that you... Uh, You cease to exist. You hardly know you're there, you're not aware of time. And, well, we don't quite have a word for this. I know the word flow has been used. It can happen in cooking a meal or playing a game of tennis or doing a spot of gardening. I mean, it's, but I think actually, it's one of the summits of human happiness is to be so absorbed in a task. Uh, even more exciting, this is not for novelists, even more exciting though, if you're engaged with it, with others, you know, collaborating in in such a focus of attention. When I was researching Saturday and shadowed a neurosurgeon for almost two years, I had sometimes fits of envy for him and what he called his his firm, his team, the surgical team, that would carry out these incredibly intricate operations that could so easily go wrong, how they collaborated, in, often in just murmurs and grunts. And I thought, well, that's one pleasure novelists can never have. You can just sort of do all your murmuring and grunting on your own. Uh, but still, a four-hour operation, even, even for a witness, would go by, it seemed like, in half an hour. So those are... those writing moments of abandonment to the material often for me late at night or early in the morning writing when the rest of the world appears to be asleep those are peak pleasure moments and they often yield opportunities for the future for um new ways of doing things a a new opening another way of approaching the stuff that lies ahead
1: You've mentioned making references to other authors in your in your own works. Where is the line as you see it between creative borrowing and transmogrification and, and stealing?
2: Well, stealing is stealing, uh, is a dishonest. But apart from that, I mean, I think for readers, all of us who are readers, all of literature exists in a sort of perpetual present. It's all there for us. It's now. And it becomes, the the totality of it becomes part of one's rhythm of thought. I mean, it's inseparable. It's part of one's reality, which is why I never want to exclude the idea. I mean, for example, in Lessons, there are moments when Roland, having now educated himself over a period of 10 years, finds his own fate colliding with characters out of choice. The dead or, or ulysses i find my everyday moments my sense of being actually in the world is conditioned by by things that have been important to me in literature so if you're going to write about subjective states which is largely what the novel uh, is good at it, it's hard to steer around it i mean when i was describing to you why i want to make lisa a great novelist and i referred to that larkin poem Well, I'd say there are maybe a dozen Larkin poems that that are part of my mental furniture. The lines just pop up all the time in my thoughts. And those shreds of thoughts of other writers are constantly with me. I mentioned Eliot and The Wasteland, I mean, it was perhaps the task of modernism to liberate us into regarding literature as our own, as it were, all of it, it, it's, its mythos. Is part of our subjective reality and we should welcome it into our literature. It then becomes difficult what many, many people in my life, as well as all of my close, all of my family, my parents' side of the family, who are highly refined, sentient beings who are capable of as greater moral distinctions and moral sense as anyone else, but they don't read literature. Um, I don't therefore think literature is the necessary element. And this is a puzzle to me. I worked six months, for example, as a dustman in Camden town when I left school in an act of sort of self-punishment. I can't think why I did it. The people I was with seemed as, as intelligent as anyone I've ever met. It never occurred to them to stay on at school. It never occurred to their parents to encourage them. It was what everyone did. And yet I thought... Three quarters of the, my crew could have, you know, in another life, in another set of circumstances, been um, book-loving, literature-loving, or physicist, or whatever. I've well, tried, I, I can never reconcile it. Um, you know, so now and then I, I like to have characters who, whose lives are drenched in books because it's so close to me. But then, you know, that means excluding other characters whose lives are
0: not so... Condition. We're um, we're coming up against the end of our time, but there was one more question that that I wanted to ask, which is it's a rule of the podcast that we always ask about money and how it's interfaced with people's writing lives. And you alluded to how in the 70s this combination of of cheaper accommodation and higher real real value terms for, for freelance writing were important when you were developing. As your career progressed and as you you know you sold a lot more books and you had movie adaptations and things, how has the, the financial side worked for you? And be as candid or as guarded as you're comfortable, but we just find these are you know really helpful things to get into.
2: Well, uh, yeah, I have more money than I used to have. Um, it doesn't radically change... Well, of course, it, in that sense, I, I live in a very beautiful house that wasn't cheap. Like many members of my generation, I rode the tide of rising house prices. And every now and then, Especially with atonement, I was able to inject some money into that section of my life. But the things that give me pleasure, books, uh, wine, hiking, were always quite cheap things. And they're, they're still the things I like most. Sitting around the kitchen table, drinking and eating with friends, still is, I think, the highest pleasure in, in my social life. So I don't need, um, I know that, well, talking of the very rich who seem to want, you know, yachts or, I don't know, gold taps or whatever it is, I, I still want the things I always liked having. So in that sense, I feel I've always had them, actually. The other great privilege is, is not to have a job and I've always not had a job. So at any point when I don't feel like working, just taking off, i have been able to do that. So I feel a bit somewhat immune to having more money. I've got, it's there. I have more money than I used to have, as I said. Nothing much more to say about it, really. Uh, I took up uh, fly fishing for a while. That was quite expensive to, you know, rent days on um, chalk streams. Very privileged environment. But actually what I most liked about trout fishing was not catching the fish so much, although that's fun. But being out there, and and instead of hiking through it, just standing in one spot and noticing it more. Uh, And then I fell away from trout. I just couldn't kill the fish anymore. I couldn't even bear to see them on a hook. I realised that a trout on the hook behaves just like a human on the hook. It writhes. And then I did a bit of research. They have exactly the same pain receptors as us. The genes that select for those pain receptors are identical to the genes we have the immortal gene Uh, so i gave it all up so if you live the life of the mind it's life is cheap Uh, if books are your main thing even if books if books doubled in price now i'd I'd be able to go on reading them but i've already got a lot of books uh and a lot of them i intend to reread so do i spend more on wine not really i think that it's a diminishing matter to spend 80 pounds on a bottle of wine as against 20 pounds um, will get you very little increase in in pleasure. As for the bottle of wine that's in my cellar uh, and is worth about 1,500 pounds, it was given to me as a prize. Three bottles of wine, a little Italian village awarded me a prize. And um, the mayor, when he handed me this, wooden case with three bottles in it said, one wine is 2,000 euros or whatever it was and one is 800 and one is 400. I drank the 400 and the 800 with my sons um, and thought they were delicious. Uh, Never would have spent that money. I mean, I could not distinguish it though from a a decent 20 pound bottle of wine. So value in relation to things is... um, it's simple if, if, if the things you love are. There's no there's no cheaper sport than hiking. I mean, you just need some shoes. <laughs>
1: really. I was going to say a zeal for gold taps would have probably made for a, a kookier story.
2: It would give me no pleasure. And it looks no. gross. <laughs>
1: <laughs> a final question from me um, is returning to your interest in science. You've said that science and uh, novels run on parallel tracks. Could you unpick that idea for listeners?
2: Yes, uh, they're very disparate, of course, um, in all kinds kinds of obvious ways but parallel in the sense that they are investigations of um of the world science mostly of the natural or or, um, chemical or physical world and fiction more of the human condition but as forms of investigation and as of exercises of curiosity i think they are very definitely linked the extent to which one can nourish the other uh, i spent a lot of time thinking about this I think science has made a great impact on, on what I write, but only in a very diffuse way. Uh, I think there's a way of thinking about the world scientifically, rationally. Giving warmth to rationality is something of a project of mine in fiction. I don't think it's a cold, abstract, um, heartless matter. I think it's it uh, contains all the warmth of what we are and all the beautiful things that we've created have required exercises in rationality. And when lovers quarrel, they generally are appealing to the others, um, um, referring to the others' um, divergence from uh, rational and consistent coherent behavior. Hard to survive in the world without a coherent uh, sense of how to move through it. And um, in that sense, I think we are warmly, rational creatures. I think, too, there's a great aesthetic pleasure in in someone like a my, myself, a, a non-practitioner but an appreciator of science. And you can love it in the sense that it's a tribute to human ingenuity, just as a piece of counterpoint in a Bach keyboard piece might be. Um, so I think within the humanist project, I think science is... Uh, fits very snugly, even though it came late to the game.
0: Well, that seems a, a wonderful point to draw our conversation to a close. Thank you so much, Ian, for being so generous with your time and for taking us both you know, back into your career and, and to the present and wishing you all the best with the new novel and with your projects going forward.
2: Thanks a lot for having me on.
0: That was the Always Take Notes interview with Ian McEwen. His website is ianmckewan.com. He's not on Twitter. His latest novel, Lessons, is published by Jonathan Cape. Hello, it's us again. Rachel, what was your takeaway from the interview with Ian?
1: It was an interview that I think could have gone on for about four hours. Um, There's so much to ask him about his career um, and his extraordinary productivity. I mean, we didn't even get into um, his screenwriting work and his literary influences. When I was doing research before the interview, I found, you know, Updike, Roth, Austin, these names kind of recurred and I would love to have drilled down and ask what it was about their work that inspired him or influenced him but such is the nature of our format and our limitations how about you
0: I really enjoyed it I mean I feel we should be we should be sort of cutting notches in our microphones for every Booker Prize winner <laughs> that we've we've had on on the show uh, again I feel yeah that we we only scratched the surface there was a, a great deal to talk about was is he the most famous novelist we've had on that's hard to know, isn't
1: it? It also slightly feels like asking a parent to choose between their famous children.
0: <laughs> yeah, th- between 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 our 150 children. But I think it was, you know, it felt like, I think with some, with some of these interviews, it, it, to be slightly grandiose, it feels like you've maybe made something of, of marginal historical importance by having a conversation there, and you know that there's it's a privilege to have. To have done so, but yeah, so so I thought it was a, a you know a great addition to our canon and, and excellent to have. Anyway, Rachel, what have what have you been up to? Uh,
1: mostly reading.
0: How is your reading challenge going?
1: I, I knew as soon as I said that I shouldn't have mentioned it. Um, I'm slightly behind, but it's because I'm reviewing a book for work, so it takes me slightly longer because I actually have to pay close attention. Um, it's an extraordinary true crime book about a woman who just poisoned lots of people in the 1920s and got away with it for quite a long time so that should be fun uh how about
0: you like we were talking off air I'm, I'm still in the alps for my book project and i've managed to sprain my ankle which has caused a bit of an an obstacle um but hopefully less and hopefully it's not that serious i'm going to go and get it checked out tomorrow so just been kind of yeah wrestling with various bits of logistics of that which has been a little bit tricky but um yeah forging on forging on with things Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aiken.
1: And me, Rachel Lloyd.
0: Our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin. Our score is by Jess Danheiser, and our graphic design is by James Edgar.
1: If you'd like to follow us on social media, we're on Twitter at Take Notes Always. We're on Instagram at Always Take Notes. If you'd like to support us on our crowdfunding page on Patreon, we're on there under Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with us via our website, please do.
0: Many thanks. Goodbye.